Marx explained over a century ago, in these crises, society suddenly finds itself put back in a state of momentary barbarism. It appears as if a famine, a universal war of devastation, had cut off the supply of every means of subsistence. And why? Because there is too much means of subsistence and too much industry. These lines today are confirmed by scenes of homeless people in Las Vegas being told to sleep in painted rectangles six feet apart while vacant hotel rooms outnumber them 23 to 1. The root of all of these absurdities is that the immense resources of humanity are constrained by the anarchy of the market and the profit motive. That America will never be a socialist country. 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 Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. My name is Pete Walsh. I am a contributing editor at Socialist Revolution Magazine. And tonight, we're going to look at the impact of the coronavirus on the economy. This week's unemployment claims have brought the total jobs lost to a staggering 22 million in a matter of weeks. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there were some 20 million jobs created since 2010 which means that more than a decade of job growth has been wiped out in the space of four weeks. And the real figure is likely to be much higher. The IMF is warning of a contraction three times worse than the 2008 uh, crisis, saying that this will be the worst downturn since the Great Depression. Yet amidst all of this, the S&P 500 recorded their best week since 1974, the Dow had its best two-week performance since the 1930s, and some analysts are talking about a speedy V-shaped recovery that is a sharp downturn followed by a sharp recovery. So what exactly is happening in the economy? The simple answer is that these people are licking their chops at the giant corporate slush fund of trillions of dollars that have been pledged to come to their rescue. In late March, the Federal Reserve, which is the only institution that has the authority to print money, began churning out $90 billion per day, announcing a further $2.3 trillion earlier this month. And then Congress passed a $2.2 trillion bill, which was meant to buffer businesses with hundreds of billions of dollars. This bill also included uh, one-time payment checks of, uh, of $1,200 to taxpayers, but these represent just one-eighth of the entire bill. So let's be clear, this is a colossal transfer of wealth to the pockets of the, of the rich and the wealthy. Even the funds that were intended for small businesses are receiving applications from your local neighborhood hedge fund, which is below the 500 employee threshold. So it's understandable why so many people are having flashbacks to 2008 or even drawing parallels to the Great Depression. But the crisis is not going to be a mere repetition of 2008. It represents something much deeper. All the tools for managing this crisis have been exhausted and the working class it will not take this one sitting down but the ruling class is throwing everything that it's got at this crisis. Just for comparison, the government bailout last time was less than half the size of the current one, and the Fed is set to pass its uh, dwarf, its, its previous intervention, within a matter of weeks. Uh, but if there's anything that we learned from 2008, it's that someone will have to pay for all of this, 
And just like last time, they will try to shift the burden onto the working class. We're now more than a decade past the crisis, but the working class has yet to see any real benefits from the recovery, while the capitalist class has been raking in record profits. And why is that? Because the profits, their profits, come from the unpaid labor of the working class. And so this entire recovery was built by squeezing the workers for more hours and less pay. Average worker compensation has risen just 12% over the last four decades, while CEO compensation has risen by 940%. And while we were being lectured about fiscal responsibility, these companies spent $7 trillion over the last decade buying back their own stocks. The restaurant industry alone spent 140% of its own profits uh, in stock buybacks just to boost the, share, the, the value of their own shares. Or if we look at it another way, Home Depot, if Home Depot and Lowe's had put all the money that they had used in stock buybacks over this period to increase wages, they could have given an additional $18,000 per year to every single worker. Instead, this money went to boost their portfolios and expand the wealth of a class of people who serve no useful function in society. In 2019, 50 CEOs made about $4.5 billion, while just the top 10 hedge fund managers pulled in nearly $8 billion. And now just three individuals, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett, collectively own more wealth than the bottom 160 million Americans. These are obscene levels of wealth that have been accumulated by a tiny handful of individuals, while millions of workers are being crushed between stagnant wages and rise, rapidly rising cost of living. Let's just take a few examples. Healthcare, which has obviously become a very important issue in the United States, where for-profit insurance schemes mean that medical costs have become the number one reason for personal bankruptcy. And the outbreak of a pandemic has only underlined the absolute necessity for a socialized healthcare system. Just between 2010 and 2016, private insurance premiums grew by three times faster than real medium household income. And now with mass layoffs, many will no longer have access to insurance through their employer. As for housing, Prices have been rising faster than wages in 80% of metro areas, and half of all the households are considered to be rent burdened. Most of those are severely rent burdened, which means that they spend at least 50% of their income, if not more, on rent. So, at the beginning of April, one-third of Americans uh, were not able to pay rent, and it's estimated that in New York City alone, 40% of tenants will not be able to pay rent this month. Of course, some states and cities have put a moratorium on evictions, but as the bills continue, continue to pile up and many people lose their regular stream of income, a one-time payment of $1,200 will not be enough to keep up. Before the crisis, it was estimated that two in five adults would not be able to pay an unexpected $400 expense. Just $400, and now millions of workers have been cut loose from their jobs because their boss can't afford to pay them but they won't have the luxury of being able to suddenly cast off uh, their rent bills and their utilities. Uh, many of them will sink further and further into debt. And already total household debt, uh, which is all credit card, auto loan, mortgage, student loan debt, hit a record $14 trillion, surpassing the level, uh, the peak before the last crisis. And we have to remember that all these figures describe the good times these figures describe a world before the pandemic, before the economy suddenly shut down and triggered mass layoffs. So the coronavirus has had a big impact on the economy, but it's not just a coronavirus crisis. 
If you dig just a bit deeper, you'll see that this was just the catalyst that has exposed all of the underlying rottenness in the system and that nothing has been resolved since the crisis in 2008. Fundamentally, capitalism is unable to escape its own internal laws. While there are always a variety of other causes and, and, and incidental features to any crisis, the main reason at root that the system goes into crisis is overproduction. And one particularly stark example is the enormous overproduction in food. There are reports now that farmers are plowing through whole fields of ripe vegetables, destroying millions of pounds of fresh produce. A single chicken processor is smashing 750,000 unhatched eggs per week. And of course, demand suddenly plummeted when hotels and restaurants and, and all these places closed, but that has only made the problem even more acute. Even in the quote-unquote normal times, there's still a wastage. In 2016, it was reported that tens of millions of gallons of milk were dumped, and that's enough to fill 66 Olympic swimming pools. Now, of course, with the economy suddenly shut down, that process has accelerated, with millions of gallons going down the drain in short order. But this is not because people don't need the food, it's just because it's not profitable to bring that to the market. In response, the Trump administration has pledged to reduce the wages of farm laborers who are on guest worker visas to help maintain the profit margins of big agribusiness like Purdue, which received $16 billion in relief funds. In fact, all of this comes along with news of unstocked shelves, of reports of food banks burning through hundreds of thousands of dollars per week to meet the surging request for food. Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos, who has seen his net worth increase by $24 billion over the course of this pandemic so far, has donated a paltry $100 million to food banks. That is less than one half of 1% of the money that he's made since people began flooding into Amazon to stock up on supplies. Then of course, you have air and car travel, which dropped suddenly as the shelter-in-place orders began. Uh, and this has made a, a, an extreme impact on the demand for oil, which has plunged prices that are now down by 40% just since early March. This is not at all the fault of the pandemic. Usually, the price of oil internationally is, is controlled by a cartel of oil-producing countries called OPEC, which regulates the production and then by that sets the prices. But as one Wall Street Journal uh, commentator noted, uh, for most of this year, these countries were engaged in what he called a, a game of chicken, all speeding towards each other, ramping up production, expecting the other one to veer off at the last minute. They did finally agree to a, a cut to production earlier this month by nearly 10 million barrels per day, but not after running up on limitations of storage capacity uh, and, and other things. So, of course, many of them are still not going to stop pumping oil uh, because it would be cheaper for them to continue at a slower rate rather than stop and restart production. And so, this is the problem. There is overproduction everywhere, although you're very unlikely to hear this term outside of uh, Marxist, uh, Marxist circles. Instead, you may hear the term excess capacity or a variety of other euphemistic jargon uh, that these people come up with. For example, in the Financial Times, they wrote that what we're seeing in the global real estate market is, quote, an explosive combination of oversupply and under demand, end quote. Or what one real estate executive termed as, quote, elevated inventory, 
<clears throat> so there are all kinds of, uh, of, uh, of, of, you know, of phrases for this. Automakers are also seeing a dive in demand as one executive explained that they're in for a huge, if not unprecedented level of wholesale supply six months down the road. Of course, if the car industry goes into crisis, that means a fall in the demand for steel and plastic and rubber and all the other component parts. The global economy is intricately interlinked and a blow to any one of these industries will inevitably create shockwaves throughout the rest of the economy. And now, of course, there are reports of goods piling up at container terminals in China as world trade begins to, to dry up. The World Trade Organization is projecting a shrinking volume this year of, of trade, somewhere between 13 and 32 percent. If those goods aren't sold, that means cuts to jobs, which leads to a cut in consumption and a cut to even more jobs, ending up in a, a vicious spiral. We are living in a, in a world of, of poverty amidst plenty, but all of this potential that could be realized uh, is, is constrained because it's aimed at making profit on the market. Or as Marx explained uh, over a century ago, uh, and I quote from the manifesto, in these crises there breaks out an epidemic that in all earlier epochs would have seemed an absurdity, the epidemic of overproduction. Society suddenly finds itself put back in a state of momentary barbarism. It appears as if a famine, a universal war of devastation, had cut off the supply of every means of subsistence. Industry and commerce seem to be destroyed. And why? Because there is too much civilization, too much means of subsistence, and too much industry, too much commerce. These lines today are confirmed by scenes of homeless people in Las Vegas being told to sleep in painted rectangles six feet apart while vacant hotel rooms outnumber them 23 to 1. The root of all of these absurdities is that the immense resources of humanity that humanity has developed are constrained by the anarchy of the market and the profit motive of a handful of wealthy individuals. The development of the productive forces has outgrown the narrow limits of the capitalist system and because of the pandemic, this reality is sinking in very sharply. In March, U.S. industrial production fell by 5.4%, which is the biggest drop since demobilization after the Second World War. And it's worse than anything that has happened during the Great Recession. But the analysts are warning us that the, the worst is ahead. Uh, capacity utilization, which is a measure of how much all the existing factories and machinery and so forth are being utilized, now stands at 72.7%, meaning that an additional 30% could be produced to meet the needs of society, but it will not be because it's not profitable. And this is, again, not just the result of a, a pandemic in the economy, it's linked up with the basic social relations of this system. In order to turn a profit, the capitalists must extract more value from the worker than they pay in wages. And so there's a fundamental imbalance that means that there's always more produced uh, than the market can actually absorb. And there are some tools that the, the ruling class can use to, to get some stability, but they only delay the inevitable. For instance, leading up to the 2008 crisis, there was a whole period where we saw a massive injection of credit, which was used to help prop up demand. And this might work for a while, but eventually, as we all know, the bill will come due and credit will suddenly turn into debt with interest. And so everything that had been propelling the system forward suddenly became a dead weight. And we saw a similar thing happen <clears throat> in the Great Depression when margin trading became popularized, where you could buy a stock on the margin and purchase the rest on credit. Industrial shares tripled, the Dow quintupled in six years, and everything seemed to be good 
as long as the market was booming. But it all came down like a house of cards as soon as the reality hit. So there's always an element of, of speculation in, in these capitalist, capitalist crises uh, so that we see a similar thing happen again in 2008 when it becomes apparent that the estimated $1.3 trillion in risky subprime loans that the banks have been peddling could not actually be paid back. But these are the savviest financial minds in the world. And so they realized that you could cut up all the risk and redistribute it into so-called securitized packages so that each person only held just a little bit of risk. But as we know, a spoonful of tar ruins a barrel full of honey and the whole thing collapsed. When that happened, 7 million people, more than 7 million people saw their homes foreclosed while big banks uh, that, that were pu pushing these loans uh, were, were bailed out. Uh, and that was the only way to prevent the kind of major crisis that we are now entering into. Uh, then, <clears throat> after this, they put up all kinds of regulations attempting to try to prevent this kind of risky behavior from happening again. Uh, but the problem is that none of this can resolve the fundamental contradictions that lie at the heart of the system. That means that ca uh, crises are always going to be an inevitable part of life under capitalism. The Great Depression, at the very least, was preceded by the Roaring Twenties and a boom in automation, which increased productivity and extracted more and more surplus value from the working class. That was the real basis for the boom in the Twenties. But in 2008, the system was not even able to use all the capacity that it already had, and so you couldn't invest in anything productive because nobody was going to be able to buy it. Uh, instead, we had a whole round of speculation that began climbing further and further away from the real economy, uh, this time sinking in $1.2 trillion in high-yield bonds. And what this is, is it's a, a form of debt that's issued by a company that is rated at or near junk. But the logic of capitalism and the market is that higher risk means higher reward. And so these yield a very high interest rate. Now, just like in 2008, we have a fortune that's been poured into securitized, this time, commercial loans instead of mortgages. Uh, the problem is that as many as 15% of US corporations are considered to be zombies. Uh, and what this means is that they're not even earning enough money to pay back the interest on their debt. Uh, and everybody is happy to reanimate these companies basically with huge injections of debt. Uh, as long as the economy is booming, it doesn't matter if they're taking out new debt to make payment on their old debts. Uh, as long as all the numbers are climbing, then everything seems like it's going fine. The problem, again, is that this isn't just confined to uh, a few irresponsible companies. Uh, the total U.S. corporate debt has now reached a record $10 trillion, that's 48% of GDP, and a third of it is rated just above junk. Uh, so just in March, $90 billion of that, of, that, uh, of that debt fell from investment grade to junk, meaning that there's a higher risk of default on these, uh, on these loans. <clears throat> And there are warnings that this number could actually double uh, by the end of the year. Uh, these are what people are calling, uh, quote unquote, fallen angels. Uh, and we're not talking about small companies or, or, or secondary companies, but, but you know, the likes of Ford and Kraft Heinz. Uh, the, the headlines that you see are now no longer talking about uh, bubbles in the economy, but how the economy is sitting on a massive debt bomb and about the sudden black hole in the economy or the coming reckoning. 
Uh, all of these contradictions were building up before any talk of a pandemic. And now, suddenly, they're eager to pass all of the blame onto the virus, uh, as long as they're the ones that aren't at fault. And this will have serious implications for the working class. It's already hit savings and retirement accounts, uh, with some people losing years' worth of savings, uh, and nobody is going to come to bail these people out. Hospitals also are feeling the financial squeeze. Uh, with the beginning of stay-at-home orders, they've seen a record drop-off in volume uh, as people stay home, cancel procedures, and don't go in for, for treatment. And because hospitals operate as a business, uh, this means that a massive cut to, to their regular revenue stream because they're not, produ they're not performing the regular, uh, the regular operations. Now, another 60% of all the hospitals uh, are classified as nonprofits, which means that when they, they make money, they don't pay dividends. They, they invest the additional money into more operations or buildings, or if they need to save the money, it goes into an investment portfolio, which acts as a saving account. So now those portfolios have been hit by all the fluctuations on the stock market, and this has led to a wave of budget and staff cuts uh, to all the hospitals and clinics precisely at a time when they're trying to prepare for an influx of patients. On the other hand, the health insurers are recording a savings from canceled procedures, which they won't have to pay for. In New York, as the crisis began to peak and hospitals became overwhelmed with bodies piling up and crematoriums running over time, uh, the new budget proposal was announced, which included a $400 million cut to hospitals, which was obviously a punch in the gut to all these people working on the front lines uh, to deal with the pandemic. But don't worry, dozens of startups and big pharmaceutical companies have entered into a horse race for the vaccine, pouring what must be a fortune into parallel research and development efforts. One news commentator explained that maybe this is just their time to shine and prove their value to society, but this is hard to believe when this is not normally a great investment for people, uh, since fewer than 10% of vaccine candidates ever even make it to the market. However, in a pandemic, the economics change, and having the exclusive rights to a vaccine means that millions of potential customers, the, the right to millions of potential customers, and I think that all of this raises clearly the need, not just for Medicare for all, but for a, a fully socialized healthcare system that is free at the point of service. And it is an urgent nece uh, necessity to, to nationalize the entire healthcare sector uh, from the hospitals all the way to big pharma and to integrate it into a democratically administered health, health provider. We don't need to live in a system where insurers are getting rich from not providing treatment, where hospitals and their, their budgets and their staff are getting cut, where millions of pounds of fresh food are being destroyed uh, while people roam empty supermarket aisles. All, all the while that this is happening, people are getting you know, bailed out to the tune of trillions of dollars uh, you know, for causing this, this, uh, this mess. And a global pandemic and a global crisis means that the same process is, is being repeated all around the globe, with Trump slashing funding to the, uh, the World Health Organization and apparently bidding for uh, exclusive access to a vaccine that's being developed in Germany. It's also apparent that this kind of crisis requires a response that goes beyond national boundaries, but it is precisely this kind of international coordination that the capitalist system is incapable of, of providing. 
uh, in the advanced capitalist countries, this is obviously having a major impact. Uh, but that is just a sample of the horror that is being unleashed on poorer countries and the slums where there is no possibility of, of social distancing or clean water uh, to wash your hands. And this crisis, I think, then has posed a question firmly for humanity to continue going along the road of unplanned anarchic capitalist barbarism or to urgently fight for socialist, the socialist future of humankind. Uh, before all of this broke out, we were watching a process where millions of young people were radicalizing and openly identifying as socialists. But now the crisis is revealing the, the true class nature of this society to a broad layer of, of the population. Millions of people have now been forced into exactly the same position, working on the front lines, laid off or staying at home, watching all of this unfold in front of their eyes. Uh, it is now very clear to people who is essential in society and who is not essential to the running of the economy and society. And we can say that not a wheel turns and not a light shines without the kind permission of the working class. And therefore, it is only the working class who can decide when and how to restart the economy. When, eventually, the stay-at-home orders are lifted and the ruling class begins to push this burden onto the, the burden of the crisis onto the working class through austerity and cuts, uh, we are in for a period of intensification of the class struggle. This may not be immediate, uh, but it is clear that it's had a major impact on consciousness in the United States on a mass scale. So this will not be a mere repetition of 2008 where people were shocked and held out for the return to a normality that would never come back. And even after the impact of the Great Depression, uh, we can see that eventually the working class recovered and waged some of its most militant struggles in the 1930s. And so now, after decades of attacks on the unions and of Red Scare propaganda, we're starting to see a resurgence of strikes and, and campaigns to organize unions. Uh, and this has rapidly accelerated the process of radicalization in society for millions of people who see no future for themselves under capitalism. The question for socialists is what will it take not just to have a big movement, but for all these currents to come together into a successful revolution that can transform society. A vast network of socialists with roots in every major factory, office, neighborhood, and campus would be able to raise these ideas and clearly show the way forward. What the situation is demanding is taking over these resources and putting them under a rational democratic plan to meet the needs of humanity to immediately build or convert buildings into hospitals and fever clinics, to guarantee safety and protections to all essential workers, to place a moratorium on all utilities, rent, and mortgage payments, to guarantee a national minimum wage of $1,000 per week, including all laid-off workers, and to introduce price controls on all essential goods. In sum, to use the colossal resources that humanity has accumulated and to harness them for human need. But this is simply something that cannot be done as long as society is organized along the basis of private property and the market. That's all that stands between us and giving every single person a job, access to quality, affordable housing, healthcare, education, and more. This is the world that we're fighting for, to rid society of all the ills and absurdities of capitalism and guarantee a dignified human existence to everyone on the planet. If you agree with these ideas and you would like to learn more, we urge you to get involved with us and join us in the fight for socialism in our lifetime. Bella ciao!